Welcome to Glam City, a show that delves into the world of Sydney's glam sector. That's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. We'll be back in 2019 with fresh voices, big new ideas and new stories from the glam sector. But in the meantime, we're delving back into our archives and looking back at some of our favourite stories. Here on Glam City, we lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvellous archivists, curious curators and purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries, libraries, archives and museums across Australia. And yes, if you are paying attention, that is our acronym, GLAM, Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. Now, on this episode of Glam City, we are going to hear from a respected publisher and now author about a book she has written on the history of 2001. Philippa McGuinness is the executive publisher of New South Publishing, an award-winning press that specialises in publishing non-fiction, including history. Yay! She's also just written a very personal history of 2001, the year that changed everything. Thank you for joining us, Philippa. It's an absolute pleasure. You are very well known in the glam sector as a publisher of histories. Um, what prompted you to write a history? Um, the really glib answer is I thought, well, how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, having published tens, hundreds of books of history. But that's not really true because I know it is hard. It's so hard. Um, but I had an idea. It's as simple as that. And I write about this a bit in the preface where... I talk about sitting amongst historians at a conference and I don't get to many conferences really because my job is quite busy and demanding and there's just not time. But my mind wandered and all these um, historians were talking about the books that came out of the bicentennial year. And it just got me thinking about the books that focus on a particular year. And, you know, I'm running through all these big dates, you know, 1066, 1492, you know, all the kind of the hits um, of all the years. And I was thinking, what would be a more recent one, a year that was really interesting? And 2001 popped into my head. And at that point, I thought, I will have to find someone to write that. That was truly where, you know, my, my thoughts were, were headed. Um, who would be good? Who could take that on? Who could write about Al-Qaeda and Tampa? You know, who's somebody who could, who could take all that on? And then I remembered my own personal tragedy. And it really was a moment where I thought, oh, my God, I need to do this myself. And that thought was terrifying It was exciting and exhilarating, but it really was terrifying because I'm surrounded by all these professors who've published millions of peer-reviewed words between them. And I'm thinking, I'm not worthy. Who am I? And then to get back to my original thought, I think I really did think, well, you've done this many times on the other side. You've watched books evolve. How hard can it be? It does start with a a very sad personal story. Can you explain what happened and also how you thought that sad tragedy kind of would filter into the work, I suppose? Yeah. We were living in Singapore in 2001 and I was pregnant. I was very pregnant 
And just after Christmas, when I, in fact, thought my baby was about to be born, um, he died in utero. And stillbirth is really quite common, much more common than people realise. And at that time, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of a woman having a stillborn baby. And, of course, then I realised it really is very common. And, and I personally know quite a few women to whom this has happened. And because of the silence around it, after Daniel, our son, died, all kinds of people came out of the woodwork, I suppose. You know, friends of my mother's would say, oh, I've never really talked to anyone about this, but that happened to me, you know, 40 years ago or whatever, and it was really shameful. So that, I guess, in some ways is the heart of the book, and it was personally challenging but in a way cathartic for me to write about it after you know really quite a long time and a lot of people who know me pretty well probably don't know that this happened unless you know they happen to be on my email list or in my close circle in in 2001 so that was a part of it. But the bigger point is that because I think it was a year that for a lot of people did throw up a lot of emotion because of 9-11, we felt this incredible uncertainty and anxiety. And even though people are killed in great numbers, horrific numbers every day across the world in different kinds of wars, there was something about this that really touched people and affected people. So writing about the grief and loss associated with that and my own grief and loss kind of all got mixed up. So you're sort of talking about the way that national narratives or global narratives of time were iterated in a personal very individual narrative about grief and time. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I am also writing explicitly about these national narratives as as well. So I'm sure that, you know, some readers, perhaps some historians will think, well, she's really having a cake and eating it, you know, doing both. But for me, that's how we live, you know. You can have this really profound thing happen to you in your life on the same day that you're watching asylum seekers being forced to get off the boat on Nauru. And do you think many academic historians are not so good at combining those two lived experiences? No, they're not. And why should they be? Because that's not their project by, by and large. But also I think academic historians are trained out of doing that really explicitly. And that's fine. You know, even talking about my personal story now, this is actually the first time I've done it, you know, into a microphone Um, because the book's not coming out for a little while. And it's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, not, not every, but I've chosen to do it, but not everyone should have to say, well, I happen to be writing about something that happened in 1968 or 1940 or whatever, you know, on the world stage, some global event. Therefore, now it's my duty to write about some terrible tragedy that happened, you know, in my own family. That It shouldn't be compulsory, but it is an interesting way to, of thinking about how we experience 
time and how we remember and all those kinds of things. And I think it does touch on something that is um, a very human trait, which is remembering bigger narratives through the prism of our own personal experience and also remembering national narratives through the prism of our families. So it's a very, what should I say, vernacular reading of the ways we do history, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was really... I suppose I was aware of that as I was writing. It wasn't, well, I'm going to sit down and write a vernacular, you know, account of how we remember history. No, I don't think I would have had that phrase in my original proposal. Mm. But I was aware that that was kind of what I was doing because I'm not dispassionate Mm. about any of this. Yeah, you know, I pop into the story, I hope not too much, but you know, at at various points along the way and often to express emotion because, you know, something, even when I was revisiting it through the newspapers or recollecting something that happened at the time, that had nothing to do with me directly, I would find myself thinking, oh my God, that is terrible. That is just the worst thing. And I would write that because I assume other readers felt that too. And we're all you know, sitting around going, what the? Mm. So Pip now is quite a character in 2001, the book. I think so. So tell us how it, how the book works. You start off, it's got 12 chapters, but are mm. they 12 months? Yes. It looks chronological, but that's a bit of a trick, actually, because the kind of history I really don't like reading is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Because Note that to gets... self, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 Perspective. And, and presenters. Because <laughs> it, it can get a bit boring. You know, like I'm interested in themes, but having published hundreds of books, I knew that 12 chapters really was a pretty good number of chapters for a book. And lo and behold, a year has 12 <laughs> chapters. So I didn't want to be too clever about it. So what I have done, apart from September, which is all about basically one or two days, 9-11 and the next day, so the 11th of September, and the few days perhaps that followed, but it's very much in the moment. And the December chapter where I write about Daniel, it's thematic. So in general, I pick out something that hooks in, that happened in that actual month that hooks into the broader theme. So for example, there's a chapter on religion, which went in completely different directions to those I thought it would go in. But George Pell became Archbishop of Sydney in April. And so that became quite a good book to write about a whole lot of things to do with religion. Actually, I don't think it was April. I think it was May. See, maybe I'm not so good with dates. (laughs) So yeah, it's May. April is about rights. And, you know, I come at that from a few different directions. Slobodan Milosevic was arrested in April. So I thought, well, that's a, a very big human rights and story and, and one about justice as well. It happens to have been the first quarterly essay in Australia. It was was published in April 2001. And it was Robin Ma- Robert Mann writing about the stolen generations and Loitcher O'Donoghue. So I write about that. So, you know, there's a chapter on money, commemoration with the um, 
centenary of Federation technology, war. It's got everything, really. <laughs> no cars, though. No cars. No cars. I love there's a great bit in the, in the preface where Pip says something like, automobile enthusiasts get stuffed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Petrol heads. Petrol heads. Sorry. <laughs> sauce, not sauce. I fe- as I was reading it, I was thinking aloud, you know, it brought back lots of personal memories. 2001 mm. was a big year for me as well, personally. But also memories of being a political actor student mm. in 2001. And I was thinking... Is this book for us who lived through it? Is it for our social generation who remember 9-11? Um, how, or is it for our children's generation or, or the children of, or the children that many of us might be teaching or mm. you know, seeing as our own or nieces and nephews and so on? Are they going to read this? Because for them, you know, 9-11 is on a TV like the moon landing is for some of us who yeah. didn't live through yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Do I have to choose? You know, every every writer, I think, wants lots of different kinds of readers. And, you know, in some ways, I think I'm probably writing with the assumptions that my readers will remember it. Mm. So because it does, everyone I've talked to remembers where they were on 9-11, for, for example, or they remember voting in what became known as the Tampa election. So I think... They are probably most likely going to be my readers, but I would love my kids to read it. And I've been really struck by some of the younger people who I've been working with at Penguin Random House who were in high school during 9-11 and, you know, they remember it like that. It will be really interesting to see if readers who weren't born in 2001 find it revelatory. I hope so. You know, I hope that they'd understand the world and the world of their parents Mm. a bit better. What else can you hope for, really? exactly. (laughs) You're here on Glam City to SCR 107.3. To download this show, check out our back catalogue. Head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SCR. Today we are welcoming two guests from UTS's very own art gallery and school of design. Stella McDonald. Hello, Stella. Hello. Stella is responsible for the coordination and promotion of the exhibition program of UTS Gallery. And she works with artists and curators to develop exhibitions, projects, publications and a whole range of public programs. And Stella was formerly the associate manager of Minerva Gallery in Sydney. And she's also an artist and writer. And joining us also is Aaron Seymour. Come on down, Aaron. Uh, He is a designer and lecturer in the School of Design at UTS and has designed audience experiences for a whole range of galleries, including the Australian War Memorial, the National Museum of Australia and a bunch of others. So what I want to know is maybe you first, Stella, how how did you come to UTS Art? Oh, a very long and painful journey through the arts. No, I trained as an artist at uh, UNSW and uh, did my master's there in time-based art. uh, Oh, what's that? It's well, it's no longer exists there actually, but it's a fantastic formal exploration of art that involves time, durational performance, video, installation. Uh, and my practice revolved around at that time looking at writing 
and how that could be a visual medium. And then I went on to uh, co-manage Minerva in, in Potts Point for three years uh, while pursuing a, a critical writing practice, writing on artist exhibitions. And then I was teaching at the National Art School and UNSW and then headed over to UTS to be the assistant curator here. So what? why do universities need art galleries? Mm. This is a question that we're always asking ourselves and being asked. And I think particularly at UTS, it's relevant to have an art gallery that engages with the coursework here, the staff, the students for a variety of reasons. One is to increase our enjoyment of life on campus. So to be stimulated and made curious by works that we see around the campus, but also to to emphasise that creativity expands our own research, expands our own questions that we're asking in in whatever faculty or or course you're studying in. Could the converse also be argued that that scholarship can extend art practice? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. So we look at uh, what our researchers are doing here at UTS to inform our programs um, and exhibitions, and at the same time we look at the art world to see what it what it can speak back to those researchers as well. Aaron, you've now been at UTS for a little while and you also come from a practice-based background. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey here? Uh, my, my background is as a professional designer and although I actually studied film at UTS and a lot of that designing took place in the, uh, for arts and cultural institutions. So a lot of work kind of in the early 2000s. At, at that time, there was a real interest in the museum sector around interactive technologies. So I worked for a company, CDP Media, as a designer, and we produced kind of interactive work, small things like touchscreens, but also kind of huge, you know, three-story high projections for a whole range of Australian uh, institutions. And, and is it hard... Uh, what are some of the challenges in, I suppose, creating digital media for a historical slash cultural institution? I don't know that there are kind of difficult challenges in a sense. I mean, I, th- I think thinking about audiences and how to sustain their attention and how much attention people are prepared to give to something. I think when you're deeply involved in a project and you care about it passionately, you you know, and, and the more you look into something, the more interesting it becomes. So you have to kind of consider... You have to put on your audience hat as well because actually when you go and see exhibitions, often you just pass through them quite fleetingly. So I think finding that balance between having an experience which is kind of rich uh, and informative but also not kind of tediously didactic and kind of overwhelming for audiences. So is that the sense? I mean, you know, Stella was saying that she hopes that the that creative practice and thinking about art on campus informs scholarship and the work of lecturers. Uh, how does that work in your own case? In terms of work practice that I do or practice that I see from other well, people? Yeah, practice that you see and being forced to think about what the public iteration of uh, your own practice means. How does that reflect back into production? I think in terms of looking at other people's work, you know, design is a literacy like anything else. And, and if you need, want to be literate in it or in, in the visual arts, you need to be looking at a lot of work. And also have to have a sense of what's kind of current and the kinds of debates that are happening in the broader culture as well. Because I think design is a kind of interesting field and it intersects with lots of other fields. Uh, and so to be a, 
I, th- I think to be successful as a, as a designer, you really have to be kind of aware of larger kind of uh, public ideas and debates. Um, in terms of my own practice, I mean, I think as an academic part of my role or responsibility is teaching, and I think you absolutely have to kind of have a practice if you want to be seen, at least if you want to be seen by students to kind of be relevant. And what are some of the projects that UTS Art are perhaps bringing in students and teachers, but also producing something um, for them to consume as well as take part in? So UTS Art is an umbrella title for three streams. We've got the collection on campus, the exhibition and collection programs, and then learning and projects, which involves connecting contemporary artists to coursework and students on campus connecting students to our exhibition and collection programs. What are the sorts of things that you're doing that provide that loop that Aaron was talking about between practice and, I guess, consumption, but not so crudely? Um, so we've got those streams I talked about. And then um, one one thing we do is um, a project called UTS Art Live. So that connects um, mostly Sydney-based contemporary artists to students on campus. So they'll come in usually with a club or a class that's particularly interested in expanding their research or Mm -hmm. practice. Um, And they will pursue an idea with a contemporary artist to stretch the way they approach problems, really, because I think at its heart, art is problem solving. And so they'll look at, for example, we've got Supercritical Mass, um, who've been working over a long time with um, Masters of Architecture students, looking at how sound impacts on architecture. So those students will take that information back to their coursework and the artists take the student input back to their own practice. And we hope that we get two outcomes. We get students' work informed by artistic practice and we get more critical works of art looking at how we live and work. What are the things I noticed when I came to UTS? Well, it's pretty damn obvious, is that it's this campus of tall buildings mm. and it doesn't have heaps of public spaces. Mm. Uh, in or the seemingly public spaces. Seemingly, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you, you need to enter into the buildings and travel up to a floor or navigate through some security st- staircase. And that's true of the Gary Building too. And it's perhaps one of the wonderful things about the Gary Building is that you come upon it rather than it sort of lurking, you know, standing out on the skyline. And this is a very long-winded way of asking, one, where is the UTS Art Gallery? But two, how do you see it as a public space in the context of the campus and the particular nature of the campus? Mm. So UTS Gallery is on level four of 702 Harris Street. It is a pretty small (laughs) gallery. And I know that the public don't know that they can come in and enter at different levels. So they could come into the Gary Building and encounter or be invited to encounter the supercritical mass performance. But by the same token, they could go up to level six of the tower and see the Warabaranura Indigenous Garden, which is one of our projects with Jambana Indigenous Research Institute as well. So yeah. hang on, there's a garden on level six of the tower there that is anybody garden, could go to? And it's filled with plants that are native to the Sydney Basin area. So they're medicinal and therapeutic plants. There's plants there that can treat a cough or a cold. There's plants there that can treat a venereal disease. They all have significance to the you know Indigenous people of, of this area. There's one flannel flower that apparently if you collect the dew from it before dawn, it cures intolerable grief. It's an incredible wow. garden. So it's um, been curated, but 
but in a collaboration with Jambana. Yeah, with Jambana, uh, with Alice McAuliffe, who's our learning and projects manager, and Auntie Fran Bodkin, who's oh, yeah. an Indigenous elder and botanist. So it's an, an incredible space. So perhaps the challenge then, given that I didn't know of its existence, mm. is ha- I mean, that, how do you meet that challenge of getting the word out to people? So we have our mailing list, we have social media, we have our network, and the challenge is always to expand that network. And with every project we do... One of the latest exhibitions is called Hello World Code and Design, which you've been working on, Aaron, you've curated in collaboration with several artists. Um, And the exhibition Hello World Code and Design examines the role of code in contemporary design, considering the ways in which designers are integrating computation into their practice. Apparently, the exhibition gathers objects and technologies from across the design spectrum, including textiles, um, fashion, moving image, graphics, and even handmade to look at some of, I guess, the processes of design and some of the coding that goes into it uh, and the impact of coding on design practice. That's correct. I mean, the, the, the motivation for the show was because there's a, you know there's a there's a, a kind of lot of rhetoric around coding and how important that is. I've mm. got two young children who are both studying coding at school. Yeah, so do I. Uh, and there's this kind of uh, public perception that coding is this kind of essential practice that everybody needs to become involved in, or they're going to become irrelevant in the 21st century. But there's not a very clear picture of what that actually means. And you know, my image of you know the traditional image of coding, and I guess through most of my life, my image of coding was someone, you know, sitting, you know, chugging Red Bull, sitting at a computer <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning, you know, writing software, basically. And I think that notion of coding is really shifting. And I think that notion of computation is really shifting. You know, we have computation increasingly distributed in all kinds of objects, obviously, in our phones and in our pockets, but, you know, in smart devices, you know, and through the Internet of Things, increasingly, everyday objects are going to be, you know, smart I hate to use that term, but at least coded in some way. And so I think design is a really interesting place to kind of poke around that question. What what does the future of coding and computation mean? And what might it mean to have skills and to work in that area? And so the show draws on, uh, I think there are 25 designers in the show from all across the globe who are kind of using coding in a way that maybe uh, challenges those conventional ideas. So, for example, Altifact, who are uh, a design studio in Melbourne whose work's based around pottery, they 3D print clay, for example. So they do these you know, beautiful 3D printed kind of artefacts. And their work is very technological on the one hand, but also very kind of artisanal on the other hand. You know, similarly, there's there's a lot of people working in the show who are kind of materialising code and computation because, again, it's something that we tend to think of as existing in this uh, invisible kind of virtual space inside a box. Mm. And so the show is very much about looking at how code is escaping that black box of the computer and being materialised in the world in different ways. Stella said earlier that the point of art is to deal with questions and that's exactly what you're explaining there. What are some of the questions and the pressing issues that some of the objects and artists in the exhibition are dealing with? Do you well, think? I'd call them designers more than artists, but I mean, I think these people all self-identify as designers. And they're, you know, I mean, I, I guess the conventional line is an artist is, is someone who's making work that's kind of purely about expression, self-expression or conceptual expression, where a designer is tending to make something that has some kind of utilitarian value. Um, so in that way, a pot, piece of pottery, 
I would call design because it's it has a kind of utilitarian function, even if it ends up being displayed in the art gallery and is and it's okay. aesthetically beautiful. And is, uh, do you think it's still answering the same questions that Stella mentioned, or is it doing something different because of that? You. I think it's doing something different, and I think design is interesting because, and one of the things the show tries to do is situate the work in a kind of larger uh, social and political and economic and environmental kind of context. Because I think what's you know I think design is incredibly powerful, and you know, and we hear a lot about how artists kind of change society and culture, but I actually think design does to an extraordinary degree in all kinds of unseen ways. You know, if you think of the great transformations in the 20th century, you know, if you think about something as disposable as Cosmopolitan magazine and how that shifted conventional ideas or popular ideas around sexuality, around, you know, around what it means to be a contemporary woman, all those kind of things. If we think about the iPhone and the way that's completely transformed the way people kind of communicate, relate to each other, you know, live their lives. So I think designed objects and experiences are very powerful because along with their explicit intention, they reshape the world in all kinds of really significant ways, some positively, some negatively. And so the show really tries to kind of look at that context as well. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the wonderful support of 2SER 107.3. So if you want to get in touch, shoot us an email um, at glamcity at 2SER.com. And thanks again to Stella MacDonald and Aaron Seymour for being our guests today. Thank you. Thank you. Glam out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs>